Philly Built is brought to you by phillyzoning.com, which is powered by Anastasio Law. Our law offices are located at 2016 Spruce Street in Philadelphia. The history of Philadelphia, like the history of any great city, is written in stone for anyone to read. Hi folks, Vern Anastasio here and welcome back to Philly Built. Today we talk to Pulitzer Prize winning 2023 Guggenheim Fellow, Inga Saffron. Inga is an author and the architecture critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Today we talk about her ideas for the old police headquarters known as the Roundhouse, her picks for the best and worst in Philadelphia development, and where she goes for her favorite pork sandwich. So get ready to listen up to the second season finale of Philly Built. Inga Saffron, welcome to Philly Built. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. It's a real honor. I've been reading you forever. <laughs> not quite forever. No, right. You're not an architect. I am not an architect. <laughs> um, so I guess for the kids out there, uh, or middle-aged men like me, how did you get here? You are the architecture critic and columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Yeah. Uh, it's not a small deal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a big deal either. How did you get here? It is a long and, and sort of winding path. And I, and, I, and I do think of myself as, you know, an ordinary citizen responding to... Um, things that are built around us. I didn't even know what an architecture critic was back in the day <laughs> when I was covering like these small towns in Jersey and a couple cities. Um, right. It never occurred to me that I, I could do that. I could work as an architecture critic. And I had this other, um, you know, ambition that I'd held since I was uh, a teenager to be a foreign correspondent. Anyway, uh, long story short, I ended up at the Inquirer. I covered more suburban towns, but then I, I got the opportunity to be a foreign correspondent, and I uh, went off to cover the war in, first in Yugoslavia, and then I became the Moscow correspondent. So I spent most of the 90s overseas. And when I came back in uh, 99, uh, you know, they never knew what to do with returning foreign correspondents back right. when the Inquirer had had them. And it just so happened that this job was open. And by then I was, you know, really, really interested in cities and um, the way they decided um, what to build and how to how to shape their their physical form. Uh, that job, the architecture critic's job was empty. And I thought that was a, a good way to delve into that topic. And I, I raised my hand. Nobody else did. Spending <laughs> yes. as as much time as you did in, in the Baltics, in, in Moscow, or in you know, Russia, and I, I'm assuming other parts of Europe that you visited, did, during that time, were you affected and or impacted by the placemaking and the architecture there? Did you sort of uh, feel yourself attracted to that? 
uh, well, aesthetic? Well, it wasn't so much the aesthetic. I mean, of course I was interested in the architecture, but I was really, I had a long interest in cities. And well, now I'm going to, I guess I got to have to tell you more details. I, I, as a very young reporter starting out, I, I, I covered a city in New Jersey called Plainfield, Plainfield, New Jersey. It's in the middle of the state. And um, it used to be, or it was, is known as the Queen City. It was a very beautiful Victorian city. Uh, at the foot of the Wachung Mountains and um, had a big, you know, downtown. And, um, you know, in the 60s, they had a lot of the same kind of problems that many cities had. And they decided the solution to that would be to tear down a big chunk of the downtown and, you know, use urban renewal money to build some giant corporate headquarters. That was in the 60s. I got there sometime in the 80s. And um, the part they had torn down was still a big surface parking lot. And, you know, uh, as someone who sort of grew up during um, that, you know, the end of the urban renewal period, I'd seen this in cities around America. And, and, you know, I remember when people used to use the term bombed out to describe what sit, what American cities look like. Right. And then, you know, I go overseas and I cover a couple of wars and, you know, they look bombed out, uh, in a similar way to these American cities that had undergone this failed urban renewal. And it made me think just about what we do to these places. And, um, so um, it was really that experience in Europe of, you know, I, 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 I covered the early part of the war of, in Yugoslavia. And, you know, I, I had been to a lot of these beautiful uh, Ottoman cities and Habsburg cities. And then I, I just saw them brutally destroyed a lot like what's happening in, in Ukraine right now. And I, I covered the war in Chechnya uh, in, in the southern part of Russia. And uh, one, once again, uh, you know, I'd been there before the war. Um, I'd been to Grozny, the capital, before the war. And um, I, I, was, I covered the war there. And it, it was, it was um, just tragic. Um, you know, all these, these memories and... Um, social relations that were destroyed by the destruction of the physical city. Um, and mm -hmm. I think, you know, some, you know, there was a, a lot of, you know, similarities with what happened in American cities. In your book, Becoming Philadelphia, How an Old American City Made Itself New Again, which was released in 2020, um, you talk about how Philadelphia sort of dodged the bullet and not becoming uh, the next Detroit. How did that, was that just by happenstance or luck? What do you, what's your take on the success of Philadelphia in the 21st century? Uh, and of course, it's struggles still. Yeah, well, that's a big question. <laughs> I don't know if we have time for the whole answer. Or, or, um, okay. But I'll just, I'll just make some observations. Um, 
because Philadelphia tore down a lot of stuff, That's you know, right. the whole area around Independence Mall. We tore down, I think, nine, nine blocks, nine entire city blocks to make Independence Mall and, and more on the edges. And, you know, that whole area around the Roundhouse destroyed and West Philadelphia around Penn, Penn yep. t- totally leveled. And, you know, they did that in the 60s. And I, I, I'm not a native Philadelphian. I'm an ex-New Yorker. And when I got to Philly in the, in the 80s, um, you know, I couldn't believe it, you know, all this, you know, emptiness. Um, so why, you know, why did we do better uh, than Detroit? I think one, one, one factor is we're bigger um, and, 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 you know, having that population mass helps. We're close to New York and Washington. Uh, I think so we had this, you know, locational advantage. Um, I, I, I spent a year in Boston, which also did, you know, I think they tore down um, uh, a, a huge part, a huge part of their downtown around Boston City Hall was was uh, they demolished. Did. They did. Yeah. And they built a highway. And they built a highway. Well, we built highways, too. But, um, you know. I think Philly is a way better city, <laughs> way more interesting, way more dynamic. And uh, we didn't tear as much stuff down in the center as Boston did. And I think another reason we did well, better than some of these other places, is because we we always had residential salted into the commercial parts of this city. I mean, to this very day, right. you know, the reason, you know, the Sixers Arena is is so problematic is because it's cheek by jowl with uh, a residential community, Chinatown, right? We always we always had these, you know, the commercial bumping up against the residential, and, and the presence of people in our downtown really saved us. The largest uh, residential population of any American downtown outside of Manhattan. So we never we ne- it never emptied out. Um, there were always people living here, and. Um, you know, unlike some of the Western cities or the Midwestern cities, you know, this is a, a live. You know, this was always a living city and a living downtown, and I think all those things helped us. And, and you know, and I should add that you know there was some leadership and some you know good ideas um, that also helped to you know keep us going. I think you can't underestimate the importance of. Um, what was used to be called the commuter tunnel, which right. linked up the old Reading um, Railroad with the um, Penn, Penn Central Railroad and created this unified transit network to, that served the whole region. Um, that was a part of Edmund Bacon's vision. And um, I think that was really important. I think, you know, the Center City District um was one of the first business improvement districts and, you know, began to try to, you know, address um, trash and safety issues uh, in Center City. Um, I think those were really important. Um, That's a a good point. Um, And the other point that you made earlier that, you know, downtown, we've, we have so many folks who live with and among the commercial space. You did an interesting piece uh, just not not too long ago um, about the great wringing of hands that many of us uh, are going through, are dealing with, as we look at 
just about 40% of our office workers returning uh, to Center City. Uh, and now we have all these offices, these office buildings that are empty. And, and folks are, you know, uh, concerned, uh, specifically concerned about the commercial activity that those office workers bring. You had an interesting take on it uh, in, in, a, in a piece you did for the Inquirer that basically said, hey, folks, don't panic. There's something good that's coming out of this. Why don't you tell us more about that? Uh, sure. So I, 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 I call that piece The Bedroom City. Right. And that was a play on the bedroom suburb. Um, I guess, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, people talked about the bedroom suburb being the place where, where people lived and they commuted into the city to, to work. Um, and, and so, you know, the mindset was, you, you know, these things would be separate. So I wanted to explore the idea of um, cities as a place to live, which indeed, you know, um, has been a, a major part of Philadelphia's rebound over the last 20, 20 or so years, is the fact that neighborhoods that were uh, depopulated or even, you know, have, have filled up again, you know, especially the neighborhoods that ring, ring the center, but even way, way beyond. So, you know, I think that's been one of Philadelphia's strengths. And, um, you know, I, uh, as I began that piece, I said there have been like dozens or hundreds of articles written, you know, in American publications, like what's going to happen to downtown? And I just didn't want to write another one of those pieces. And also I, Notice that um, even as you know, you know the downtown office district feels underpopulated. A lot of neighborhoods feel like more alive than ever because people are home. That's right. During the day, and they're going out for coffee, and they're walking their dogs. I'm looking out my window right now at the park, and you know there are little kids from the preschool running around. And um, so when I did that piece, I interviewed uh, people from um, East Pashunk and. Northern Liberties, and they were seeing an uptick in the number of occupied storefronts because um, there were small businesses that were trying to capitalize on this uh, residential population. Now, of course, that is not, you know, and I think we will see for a lot of different reasons our residential population continue to grow. Uh, that won't solve all our problems uh, because of the way our tax structure is. Um, I think we will probably see uh, some office buildings, more, more, you know, sort of 90s era office buildings converted to residential. Uh, that won't solve all our problems. Um, but I do think it is one of our strengths. And um, I think we, we, we need to, you know, build off our strengths. You mentioned the um, um, the urban renewal push in the 60s and what happened in and around Chinatown. Uh, and I specifically want to talk uh, about what, what I consider to be one of the most uh, beautiful buildings of that era, uh, which is the Philadelphia, old Philadelphia police headquarters, also known as the Roundhouse. Uh -huh. You consider that the one, one of the most beautiful buildings? From that era. Uh, from that era, uh, I do. Oh, good. I'm you glad know. to hear that. Um, and I think you appreciate the building as well, based on what I read. Um, one of your pieces on the, 
reimagining mm-hmm. the roundhouse and what it could do to spark a new neighborhood. Yeah, I, you know, I love that building actually as a building. Um, At least on the outside, I, I've never been I, inside. I have been inside. It's fantastic on the inside too. I mean, we we know all the problems that it's a problematic has a problematic history, but if we just put that aside for the moment, um, the inside is incredible. All you know, I've been in the chief's office, and it's this round room with um, walnut built-ins that are curved along the wall. It's uh, they have these cylindrical uh, ceiling light fixtures. All the elevators are cylindrical. Like there's this whole like circular cylindrical theme going on. Uh, it's so groovy. <laughs> it's the grooviest police yeah. building ever built. I bet. I bet. Uh, and share with us your thoughts on how this could be an anchor for a new affordable neighborhood. Yeah, so um, so I recently wrote this column tackling, you know, what should we do with the roundhouse because um, the city's now going through this public engagement process in preparation for uh, selling the building and this surface parking lot that's right behind it. And, um, you know, there is a, a you know... People have a lot of strong feelings about that building. You know, it's been very tarnished by a history of, you know, police brutality and misconduct. And for a lot of people, it's really hard to separate that history from from the architecture and the building itself. And so um, I think it would be a terrible thing to, to lose that building because it didn't start out um, that way. It started out as a, a project of reform under, under the Dilworth administration. Anyway, when I, I was researching the history of that building and I realized that the, um, uh, urban renewal plan for the neighborhood around the building, uh, was produced the same year that the building, uh, was completed in 1962, and I looked up the maps and I and I and the, and the old photos, and I I saw that the round when the roundhouse was built, it was completely embedded in an intact neighborhood. Um, it wasn't you know the best of neighborhoods. It was known as uh, Philadelphia Skid Row at that time, but it was full right. of old theaters and and you know these mission buildings and. Um, SROs, you know, they've probably been something else once before, but, um, and then, uh, within the span of a couple years, everything was leveled and, you know, there's actually two kinds of urban renewal, the kind where they tear things down and they build things and maybe they're good or not. And then there's the kind like in Plainfield, New Jersey, and like in the area around the roundhouse where they tear things down and they never build anything. <laughs> and just roads, or, right? No, That's surface parking lots, right? Yeah. So so yeah. here we are, um, 60-something years later, and, and the roundhouse is surrounded by surface parking lots. Right. Still, yeah. I mean, that's the great, great tragedy of it all. And I, and I realized there were really two issues, not just what to do with the roundhouse and how to deal with its history, but how to deal with this, you know, sort of also brutal history 
of urban renewal and what it did to that neighborhood. And, you know, then I began thinking about these, you know, these two issues. And I felt we really, you know, we really shouldn't separate them. If we're going to try to repair the history of this building, we should also try to repair the neighborhood. And I began to think, you know, well, um, we could solve both things at the same time. We could, you know, create some kind of district, development district, with um, to incentivize residential construction. You know, this is one of the few parts of Center City um, that remains sort of moribund. Um, and, right. you know, let's say we created a district, um, and let's say that district had incentives to encourage affordable housing, you know, I, I, I don't know what form it would take, whether it would, you know, some tax rebate or abatement or, you know, maybe real money, but anyway, some kind of incentive. Or bonuses, but, height bonuses. Yeah, you know, different, I, I, I think it's already thing. zoned pretty high, but anyway, some, some kind of incentives. I, I mean, I'm not the right one to say what they should be, but, you know, we could redeem this building and redeem this past by creating, you know, a nice residential area, mixed income, um, that offered housing to, to, to people of lesser means, um, that maybe reuse the building, you know, maybe, maybe some, you know, memorial there to, uh, the history in the building, maybe a health center in the building, maybe a hotel in the building. I, I wouldn't be opposed to that either. Um, you know, the idea that the, the building itself has to be the site where, where this redemption takes place, I think is a, a narrow way of looking at it. And I think we could, you know, address that history in, in the larger context. I would say along, along with that, um, the city would have to make improvements in 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 various pu- public spaces like the roads, like Race Street, which was turned into a literal raceway to the... Yeah, you did say something about narrow. Yeah, the, yeah Race right? Street used to yeah. be much narrower. And you could actually see that as you move east from Chinatown along Race Street, you, you, you move from a very comfortable, intimate, urban street to a highway for a couple blocks. Yeah. So we could put that, we could narrow that. Um, and that would definitely change the feel of that area. And it would improve the connections, the pedestrian connections to Franklin square to the North. Um, you may know that this, the city is interested in capping a portion of the Vine Street Expressway that goes through Chinatown. In fact, there's a meeting on Monday night uh, about that. Yes. And, you know, those are those kind of repairs are, are, are important because they helped um, reconnect these pieces of the city that have been um, cleaved by highways and, you know, the bridge entrance um, and various things. Like Washington Avenue, which you also uh, wrote about um, yeah. at least more than once. What did we get wrong there? How? Why was it such a mess, in your opinion, the road diet to ease traffic on Washington Avenue? And I know you cautioned future 
mm-hmm. corridors uh, mm-hmm. when doing mm-hmm. going through this process. Uh, what's your takeaway on that whole Washington Avenue thing? Well, I think Washington Avenue was particularly f- fraught because there's so many constituencies. Um, there's residential on both sides, but it's a, a really important business corridor with, um, at least for now, um, businesses that are sort of like wholesale businesses that receive a lot of deliveries and pickups and and use the sidewalks and the street as an extension of their business. So there was a big clash between residents, you know, who wanted a a nice boulevard that was pleasant to cross and use and and the businesses which are important to the city. And 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 then there were, you know, even among the residential neighborhoods there were, you know, different visions of what the city should be. Um, right. so I mean I I did not participate in all the public engagement, but I it was it went on for like ten years. Um I, That's right. I, I, and and there was a consensus, you know, maybe that public engagement wasn't perfect. Maybe, and I, you know, I did write a column supporting extending that public engagement to, to, to hear from uh, neighbors in Point Breeze who felt left out because the, the, end, the end of that public engage, engagement process was done uh, digitally. Um, but I think the great tragedy is ultimately the decisions were made by two council people through councilmanic prerogative. So what's more undemocratic than that? I, you know, I would argue they would say they're elected, but you know, you had people spend hours and hours of their time participating in this democratic process, and then two people um, become the deciders. Um, so that's yeah. one thing I think that's really unfortunate. Um, the other unfortunate thing is they became these two people, these two council people, Councilman Squilla and, and Councilman Johnson. They decided how it was going to be laid out, and they have different layouts on on, on the two sides, east and west. Uh, Completely yeah, different. So that's Completely crazy. Different. So um, wow, that is such a bad result. Um, yeah, I, you know, uh, there are other very problematic streets like Lehigh and uh, Allegheny that are, you know, they need, you know, some they need a lot of TLC, too. Oh, speaking of large avenues, oh, I was born and raised in this in, in, here in the city. Uh, and I'm a Bella Vistan. And one street that I have always tried to avoid my, I think my whole life, because I just find it to be just a yucky street. Um, and I'm sure I'm going to get email now from folks. Um, is Snyder Avenue. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And then I stumble across this piece you did on, on Snyder Avenue and, and how you find it so remarkable. I love Snyder Avenue. As I said, I'm a cyclist. And I one of the things I, I um, once I stopped commuting to the office, I wanted to, you know, get my steps in and, you know, so I started even more than I did pre-pandemic, just bicycling to neighborhoods that I didn't go to regularly. And so I uh, did a few bike trips up and down Snyder Avenue, and I just was blown away by the variety 
of you know et- the ethnic diversity, the retail diversity, the architectural diversity. I mean, from one end to another, it's the most incredible street. And I recently um, gave a walking tour actually there. And um, the people I took on this tour were really blown away as well because we, we start on the on the far west end um, near the um, they call it the viaduct right, um, right. that ele- that CSX elevated thing, and uh, we walked all the way to Front Street and um, you know we went th- we passed you know Dominican uh, hair salons and. Um, uh, Mexican bakeries and Irish bars and um, some kind of store for, um, or not store, storefront um, for, you know, to represent um, Italian workers, you know, the rights of Italian workers. Like I've seen that building. The yeah. Immigrants, I've, Italian immigrants yeah, or something. Yeah. It was interesting. I've seen that, yeah. Uh, I don't know what that is. I mean, it was just a most amazing mix and um, restaurants and um, uh, it, it just, um, it's a really interesting place. And you, there's an old, um, uh, there are old theaters, there's an old Turkish bathhouse, uh, which is now a church. Um, of course, there's Angelo Bruno's house. Um it's just it's it's a, it's a, it's an amazing mix, and it just you go through this neighborhood, you know, sort of Cambodian Vietnamese neighborhood known, known as Little Saigon. Um, you know, it's it's just um, one of the extraordinary streets of Philadelphia. I think. I mean, it's like I mean, people talk a lot about Queens, New York, being the most diverse place in America, and I felt Snyder Avenue had a lot of that quality. Of this okay. this richness of um, that vibe, yeah, that vibe. This you know, there's a lot of retail, a lot of uh, restaurants, um, a lot of small businesses, uh, ch- all kinds of churches, um, and um, yeah, I felt it had that vibe, and uh, I hope it never goes away. Over the last you know, since the '90s, since you've been back. Um... You know, there's been a lot of building, as you know, uh, whole neighborhoods have been transformed like Northern Liberties and now old Kensington and uh, parts of West Philadelphia completely renewed um, to some extent. Architecturally speaking, what would you say we really knocked it out of the park in, 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 in Philadelphia? A lot of art, a lot of, you know, recent architecture, I would put in two buckets you know, bucket one is the institutional architecture like Penn and Drexel and Temple and the the art museums and various cultural institutions. And those institutions, you know, they build forever, right? They're not flipping it. They're not making money off it. And so they produce pretty high quality architecture generally. Then the other bucket is um, residential architecture. Uh, and so we have row houses and we have, um, you know, apartment buildings. And, especially, especially, and, and they're, you know, built for profit. 
and um, especially the uh, apartment buildings, which often developers build and then they sell to, uh, you know, some big um, national management chain. And they're built not forever, but for five years, (laughs) you know, uh, they're built like, you know, they're built to flip. And um, so the quality is not there for the most part. Unlike in the old days, like when you'd have some merchant builder who would build an apartment building and they would see it as part of their portfolio and they would, you know, be proud of it and they would manage it and care for it. That doesn't exist anymore. They would etch their name on it. They would etch their name on it, right. So the whole financial model has completely changed. This is a big subject for me. Um, Anyway, so I would say there hasn't been much good there hi i will i will have a shout out though <laughs> now that because i just thought of it um i do love this new building by carl Dranoff. by uh, actually the architects are kpf out of new york it's called art house it's on broad street yeah. i think that is i mean that is a super expensive <laughs> condo building uh I think it's really well done. I love looking at that building. It uh, has these very sharp white fins. It's very crisp. Um, I like the, you know, there's parts that are higher and lower at the top, so you get this nice profile at the top. Um, I don't love the garage, uh, but um, but I love looking at it on the skyline. I think it's, it's, it's really beautiful and crisp. And... Um, the white looks really nice. Um, it, it does. Driving up Broad Street, when you see it, it, it just it pops. Yeah. Uh, from the south, when you're driving right. up from the right. south. Right. So, so, you know, if, you, if you're building a super expensive condo tower, you know, it's a lot easier to make it a quality design. And, and, and it's good that, that it is. Um, what I also liked when it was, you know, first built was the piazza in Northern Liberties. I thought that was really, um, you know, what they call a game changer. Um, Mm -hmm. and that in a way is, is, is very different because it uses very humble materials like concrete block and brick. Um, but it uses them in a very muscular way. And I like the way it holds the edge along second street and Germantown Avenue. And, um, I, I, I like the, the, the plaza on the interior. Um, and um, I liked all the retail that it had. Um, so I thought that was a really good design and an important design. Um, it was a game changer for that yeah, neighborhood, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, um, So, you know, that's sort of in the residential category. And there, you know, there are certainly handsome new row houses and small apartment buildings around the city, although there's a lot, um, you know, that I, I, I don't really care for it i worry about you know i worry about the future of the a lot of these you know metal paneled buildings you know that i that i that are being built you know to be flipped um you know how long they're really going to last and you know i worry that we're 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 building the slums of tomorrow um Uh, yeah yeah no it's a you know construction quality i think is a really big problem um there are some really expensive townhouses. I guess I won't. I won't say exactly where, but in you know, in Center City, 
Um, and I remember uh, when they were built, they were the most expensive townhouses at that moment. This would have been probably the early 2000s. And um, I toured them. And um, they were recently, they, they, their facades had to be ripped off and um, because there was water infiltration. So these townhouses that sold for over a million dollars in the early 2000s um, had to be completely refaced um, at, at in less than 20 less years. Less than 10 years. And, than 10 and, years. and, and wow. you know, if, if million-dollar townhouses can't survive 10 years, what hope is there for, you know, $300,000 townhouses? Right. Uh, yeah, that, that's a scary yeah, proposition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, with the cost of construction going mm -hmm. up, uh, it's just more incentive to cut some corners when they can, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, yeah. Have you thought of your biggest stinker? Me? <laughs> yeah. My, 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 which columns? I don't want to. No, no. I mean, I mean uh, you're oh, uh, architecturally speaking oh, in the city. Oh, The biggest, uh, one of the biggest, uh, you're one of Inga's clunkers. Well, I really disliked the um, I really disliked the new police headquarters in, in the former Inquirer building <laughs> I would say in all my years of covering architecture and development the repurposing of that building for the police is the worst government project I have ever seen um, yeah, I, I read that yeah because of the interior layout? Yeah, because and... of the interior layout. Yeah. I mean, they did a beautiful job on the outside. I'm very glad to see the, the building uh, historically renovated, and they won an award from the Preservation Alliance. Uh, no, no quibbles with that. That's fine. But, um, well, first of all, I think it was a huge mistake to choose that building for the police headquarters, and I don't think they really did a serious programming study, because if they had they would have realized that they were going to have to put the whole police department and all the ancillary things that are there. There's two local districts and there's the medical examiner. They would have to put them all in the, the, the lower podium portion of the building, which is where the presses were. And it's a huge open space, right? So what happened was once they installed the offices around the perimeter for all the bigwigs and whatever. Then they had this huge volume of space on the interior with no windows that they had to carve up for everybody else. Um, and so um, it's terrible. Also, I would say that the quality of the finishes are, are terrible. And, and to think that they moved from the roundhouse, which, okay, might have been problematic in other ways, but was at least a more, you know, had windows. Um, lots of lo them. Too. Lots of them. Yeah. They moved from like a, an architecturally distinguished building with a lot of ambition to um, a big box. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I know you had mentioned in a separate article that you wish they would have, the police department would have looked more seriously at the Provident building and on 46th Street. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that would have worked better for them. Um, I mean, I think what happened at the Provident is, is great. You know, they put, it's a, yeah. a couple of um, 
health clinics and uh, and a charter school, and it's it's beautifully done. Uh, so so it's in that sense, you know, that's kind of a happy ending. But in both cases, you know, the city lost a lot of money. A lot of things were not well considered um, from a financial point of view, from a space planning point of view. Um, and I, uh, it's hard to get answers on, you know, how those decisions were made. Yeah. Maybe things will be a little bit more transparent, um, with the next election. (laughs) We can only hope. Hope springs eternal, right? right? All right. So final question. Uh, you are a Philadelphian. Um, now I am. Yes. No matter, no matter how few years you've actually lived here. Uh, I've been here on, on and off for over 30 years, but I think that, that makes you almost a Philadelphian. Oh, my, my, do- I, my daughter was, was born here. All right. Well, she's, she's, uh, she's got the bona fides. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you go out for, for lunch or for dinner, what's your favorite place to grab a bite? Oh gosh. <laughs> Um, uh, there's so many great restaurants. I, I, I feel, you know, it depends what I'm in the mood for, you know, um, just pick one, uh, just one, <laughs> yeah, just give me one, uh, your go, or maybe just your go-to, you know, mm-hmm. that comfortable spot you like to go to. Grab, well, um, you know. a kitchen, um, is On a walnut, uh, uh, eight, uh, 18th. 18th, right. Um, Which in the Walnut, right. Um, You know, I just find that a really easy place to go to. It was always, you know, food's always good. Um, And um, um, when I'm, I'm, I'm being bad, I go to Porco's on Washington Avenue. Porcos? Oh, you never been to Porcos? I've never been to Porcos. Uh, where, where in Washington? I think it's Twenty uh, Second, uh, near the Dock Street Brewery. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's a you know just your basic porchetta sandwich. Well, there's nothing basic about a porchetta yeah, sandwich, yeah, right? That, yeah, yeah, That's pretty awesome. With some rock. Well, thank you for that. Oh my God, you have to go with with, with the broccoli rob, with right? the broccoli and the pro- rob and the and the cracklings. Yes, you must. As soon as you as soon as you think as soon as you finish this podcast, I want you to go there. <laughs> well, thanks for the tip, Inga, and thank you for your time. Oh, thank you, Aaron. thank you for inviting me. And that's a wrap for our second season here on Philly Built. Now's your chance to catch up on those episodes you haven't heard yet. And if you're ready to do something that requires Philly zoning, be sure to contact Anastasio Law at info at phillyzoning.com. We'll see you back here for a third season. But until then, for producer Joey Sweeney, the staff at Anastasio Law, and the team behind phillyzoning.com, I'm Vern Anastasio, and we thank you for joining us.